Today I'm talking with author and lecturer of spirituality and psychology, Steve Taylor. Hello, Steve. Hi there, Michael. So tell me, Steve, who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, I'm mainly an author. I think of myself mainly as an author of books on spirituality and psychology. Uh, so I've written a few books, uh, including Waking from Sleep and The Fall, and my latest book, The Calm Center. And so that's my main role. But I'm also a lecturer in psychology at a university in the UK at Leeds Beckett University. So I have a sort of, um, you know, partly an academic role as a psychologist and partly a role as an author of, of these books on spirituality. How did you get into this area of work, Steve? Well, it was it was something that was always inside me from a young age. Um, although it took me a, took me quite a long time to to realize who I was and to find my path, but it, it was definitely inside me from definitely from my teenage years. I was always interested in spirituality and in kind of esoteric phenomena. And uh, in my twenties, I experimented with meditation and experimented with some psychedelic substances. And um, I was always in, I always read books on philosophy, psychology, spirituality. I was always interested in, particularly interested in Eastern spirituality. So I like to read books on Indian philosophy, and on, on Buddhism and on Taoism. So and, and at the same time as having those interests, I always always held an impulse to write as well. Um, so initially, I tried to write short stories and poetry. But later on, I realized that I actually should be writing about spirituality and psychology. So eventually, in my, in my early 30s, I kind of realized I began to write books in, on those themes. And um, almost straight away, I began to get articles published and I had my books published too. You mentioned the word spirituality there, Steve. But what do you mean by spirituality? Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, it's, it's, called, it's one of those words which means something different to, to every, every different person. But, uh, you know, some people think, think of spirituality in terms of religion. Some people think of spirituality in terms of psychic phenomena. But for me, spirituality isn't really connected to those areas. Spirituality is connected to self-development and self-discovery and self-exploration. And, and most of all, spirituality is about expanding our awareness and um, expanding our vision of the world so that we can perceive a you know, a, a greater reality and so that we can gain insights that are normally beyond our, our awareness. Steve, you're friends with Eckhart Tolle. What's that relationship like with him? I've met him a few times and uh, we've corresponded by email, but he lives in Canada, so I don't see him very often. But, but he's been very supportive of my work. Um, about 10 years ago, I wrote a book called The Fall, which was a book about anthropology and archaeology it was an attempt to understand human history in in kind of spiritual terms. And uh, I thought he'd like the book. So I sent him a copy of the book. And he replied a few months later, saying that he really liked the book and he wanted to help me promote it, he wanted to help me gain some attention. And so he recommended the book on his website. He gave me a quote for the cover. And he was really helpful. You know, he helped to draw people's attention to my books. And ever since then, we've, we've remained in contact. And th about three years ago, he invited me to Canada to take part in a dialogue for his internet TV channel, Eckhart Tolle TV. So we, we did that. And while I was there, I gave Eckhart uh, a copy of my book of poetry. I also write poetry. And I gave him a copy of my book of poems. 
And he really liked the poems. He liked the poems even more than my other books, which are kind of like prose psychology books. So he told me about two years ago, he rang me up and said he was thinking of starting his own publishing imprint. And he would like to publish my next book of poems. Uh, so that came to fruition about six months ago. About six months ago, I had a book called The Calm Centre published, which is a book of... Um, it's not really poetry. It's poetic, but it's not really poetry. It's a book of spiritual reflections and meditations, which are written in a poetic way. And that was published by Eckhart Tolle, Eckhart Tolle Imprints, with an, with an introduction by Eckhart. So that was great. You know, it was great to be published uh, published by Eckhart's um, publishing imprint. From talking to you there, you seem to have a very strong sense of purpose in your life and the work that you do. And like, how important do you think having a strong sense of purpose in a person's life is? Funnily enough, I've been writing about that recently. That's one of my latest projects is um, I'm writing a book about the power of purpose and why it's so essential for us to to have a strong sense of purpose. And I've also, at the moment, I'm conducting research at my university on purpose. Uh, we're trying to uh, we're trying to find out if it's possible to um, to distinguish different levels of purpose, different types of purpose, and what kinds of effects those different purposes have. So some people may have a basic purpose just to get by from day to day, just to survive. You know, if people don't have much money, if they're struggling financially. Or even if they're struggling emotionally, their, their basic purpose is just to get by from day to day. And other people may have a what I call a personal accumulative purpose, which is the, you know, the main purpose of your life is to achieve more things, to, to gain more wealth or maybe gain more success or status or power. But some people may have a, a more altruistic type of purpose. So they, they aim to make the world a better place, to help their societies, to help other people. And other people may have a, a kind of spiritual purpose. Their purpose is to, to expand their consciousness, to change the way they see the world, to grow in a spiritual way. So, the, so there are different types of purpose. But um, it's in, in general, it's very, it's very beneficial to, you know, to have a purpose because it gives you a sense of direction in life. It gives you a sense of orientation. And it helps you to transcend difficulties. And if you have a strong sense of purpose, you can overcome obstacles. You can, you know, uh, ride through challenges which which may otherwise be too difficult for you. And you, you can um, you can keep going in all kinds of terrible and difficult circumstances. And it's also well known that a strong sense of purpose is really is essential in recovering from addiction, because if you are addicted to to alcohol or to drugs then your overriding purpose in life is to to sustain your addiction, you know, to get hold of the substance, to feed yourself with the substance that you're addicted to. So when you cease to be, when you try to overcome your addiction, you have to find a new sense of purpose to replace that. And, uh, and if you don't, or if you lose that sense of purpose, then you're likely to relapse and to go back into addiction. So it's, I think it's, there's a very therapeutic aspect of purpose too, that especially people, for people who are who are recovering from addiction. And Steve, like, how do we know that we're living a life of purpose and say even going the right direction in our lives? Well, we feel um, it's something kind of intuitive. You know, sometimes we take on a sense of purpose from our society or from our parents or from our peers. We do what's expected of us. 
So, you know, if your parents say to you, you know, you, you should really get a, a good career, you should be a doctor or a lawyer or something along those lines. So you do, you sort of, you do that to please your parents or because you think it's expected of you. But sooner or later, if it's not what you're really supposed to be doing, then you'll feel it. You'll feel a, a sense of unease. You'll feel a, a sense that, you know, this is not quite right. You're, going, you're not really going in the right direction. So eventually, even if it takes years, you'll feel a, a kind of aversion to what you're doing. But if you, if you shift into a different direction and try to find out what's authentically right for you to do, what is your authentic purpose, then you know, you'll know it. You'll feel a sense of ease. You'll feel a sense of belonging. And you'll feel a sense of rightness. So and you, you'll have an intuitive sense that you're moving in the right direction. Do you think this strong sense of purpose could, say, even like extend a person's life and make them healthier and happier in their lives as well? Definitely, yeah. There's a, there's quite a lot of research showing that that is the case. And it goes back to a psychologist called Viktor Frankl, who was an Austrian psychologist who was Jewish. And in the Second World War, he spent three years in concentration camps. And... He, he, after the war, he, well, he was one of the few people who survived the concentration camps. I think it was only about 10% of people survived them. And he felt that the reason why he survived, or one of the reasons, was because he gave himself a strong sense of purpose. Because um, when he was taken to Auschwitz, he lost the manuscript of a book he'd been working on for years, his life's work. Uh, he'd sewn it into the lining of his coat, but his, he, his coat was confiscated and he lost the, the manuscript. So he gave himself the task of reconstructing this manuscript. So he'd memorize lines, he'd make notes on scraps of paper. And he was sure that that continual sense of purpose helped him to get through the, the terrible you know, deprivations and the terrors of the, the concentration camps. And he, he sensed that you know, when he observed the people around him, his fellow inmates, it was when they lost their ideals or they lost their hopes and goals that was when they were most likely to become ill and to die. So when he, when he uh, after the war, you know, he investigated the, the importance of purpose in a lot more detail and he developed a, psych a type of psychology called logo logotherapy, which is all about, you know, identifying purpose and following your purpose. And in fact, more recently, in the last couple of years, there have been a couple of psychological studies showing that... Um, that people with a strong sense of purpose, they, they're likely to live for longer. I think it was on average two years longer with a strong sense of purpose, which doesn't sound a lot. But, you know, if you're if you're 85 years old, then two years is quite a, quite a long time. And um, it, the research also shows that um, people with a strong sense of purpose have better health. They're fitter. Uh, they have fewer health problems. And psychologically, they're, they're much more positive and they experience much more well-being. I read that book myself as well, and it's a fantastic book, Man's Search for Meaning, isn't that the name of the book? Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. Mm. Do you think it's down to the individual themselves to create that meaning and purpose in their lives? Well, it, it can be, but um, I think kind of the most beneficial and the most authentic purpose doesn't really come from us as individuals. It's when we we kind of align ourselves to a purpose which is bigger than us, which doesn't come from us as individuals. I call, I call this transpersonal purpose because it's, um, you know, it comes from a source beyond us. Um, so it's, 
it's, it's quite difficult to explain, but I think many people who are creative experience this. You know, they, they feel that they are almost channeling ideas and insights from somewhere else. And these insights and ideas are flowing through them. And their purpose is just to receive these ideas and to kind of um, to express them and put them into a form and to communicate them to other people. And I think people who are who are very altruistic and very idealistic think that I think they experience this too. You know, they feel that they have a sense of mission. They have this very powerful impulse to to do good things, to make the world a better place. And it doesn't really come from them. They sort of allow this impulse to flow through them. And also many people who experience a strong impulse to develop spiritually, they also, you know, it's, it's almost as if the impulse comes from somewhere else. It's somewhere bigger than them and they just allow it to flow through them. And I think that's the most rewarding and most meaningful type of purpose. Are there any times, say, Steve, that a person would block that sense of purpose coming through? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think some people may not trust. Well, well first of all, they may not be aware of who they really are. They may not be living authentically. As I said before, they could be people who, who live according to the values of their culture or they try to conform to the expectations of their parents. And so they, they, they may block their authentic purpose. Uh, or maybe they just don't understand themselves. It, it can take a long time for people to understand themselves. You know, it can take um, 10 years or more for people to discover who they really are. It can take a whole lifetime, you know, it can take decade, decades of some people to to sort of shake, shake off all the influences they picked up and to uncover their true selves. So I think first, people need to go through this process of discovering their authentic selves and finding themselves. And once you find yourself, that's when you can allow this purpose to begin to flow through you. What do you mean by your authentic self? The self which many of us develop and which many of us use to negotiate our lives. It is a kind of a conditioned self, which we've created to, partly through the demands or through the conventions of our culture, partly due to the influences of our parents and our peers. And it's a kind of, this, it's a kind of culturally created self, which we, th we think we should live by. And... Some people seem to get by okay, you know, they seem to live quite happily with that self. They, you know, they do, they do the things they're supposed to do. They, uh, you know, they, they take up careers and um, uh, they try to, you know, accumulate possessions and try to increase status and power and success. And, you know, they buy material goods and live, live according to social conventions. And that's fine for some people. But for others, um, there's a, a kind of authentic self which may be pulling them in a different direction. So first of all, they have to decondition themselves. They have to sort of shake off these influences, these conventions and traditions, and begin to live in a more authentic way. So it, it, you know, it means becoming an individual. It means, uh, in, in some ways, it, well, it may appear selfish to other people. But it means that living according to your own impulses rather than conforming to social conventions. I've done mm. some, um, some research in psychology with people who've been diagnosed with serious medical conditions like cancer and people who've gone through bereavements and other very difficult life situations. And one thing I've found is that when people have been through those situations, 
they change quite dramatically. Well, they, well, they often change quite dramatically afterwards. And one of the ways in which they change is often that they begin to live to live more authentically. So they they realise that they well, they weren't living in accordance with their own basic impulses. That they were trying to please other people. They were trying to conform. They were trying to fit in. But after the you know after cancer or after a bereavement. They realize that you know that life is too short and too precious to live like that. That you have to follow your own calling, even if it means making a fool of yourself, even if it means you know other people that other people don't like you, that other people, other people don't understand you, other people may criticize you, may make fun of you, but it doesn't matter. You know the important thing is just to follow your calling. So people, you know, some of the people I spoke to, they sold their businesses, they gave up their their high-powered career jobs, and they realized that they, they wanted to do something more meaningful to them and something which really fitted with their own inner nature rather than just trying to conform and trying to fit in. You mentioned talking about this subject in something that I came across, what you spoke about, where you said like about stepping outside and allowing the river of purpose to flow through. By that, I mean um, that we we should stop following our own personal ambitions and desires and we should trust that uh, that there is a kind of a higher purpose which will flow through us once we step aside so it means that you know rather than following our personal ambitions to i don't know become famous or uh, become rich or successful we should just stop trying to live so rigidly stop trying to push and um, stop trying to move forward and stop striving and we should just allow life to flow through us rather than trying to direct life uh, i sometimes use a metaphor of, of swimming and floating that in a, in you know in most cases in most throughout most of our life we try to swim we try to you know we try to swim in a particular direction we try to move forward consciously by making efforts but really, we should allow ourselves to float with a river. You know, we should trust that life is taking us in the right direction. And we should have the faith that, you know, if we allow life itself to take us forward, then we will move in the right direction. And I think that's what happens. You know, when we do that, then a higher purpose can begin to flow through us. And would this be kind of regarded as like an egoless state? Yeah, I mean, definitely, yeah. It's... um I think many people live in a in a very in a very egoic mode in which they're trying to push themselves forward they're trying to um arrange life to suit themselves they're trying to force the world to be as they want the world to be and you know as a result they become uh, prominent uh, they gain respect and admiration and achievement but on the negative side that can often lead to a sense of, well, it can lead to exhaustion and it can lead to a sense of separation and it can also lead to a sense of inauthenticity, a sense that you've somehow become disconnected from who you really are. So um, that's the danger of the kind of egoic mode. But if you if you let your ego step aside, if you, you just push your ego to the side, or allow your ego to just fade away. And as I was saying, if you allow life to move through you, and if you allow 
higher purpose to inform your life and inform your actions, then your life begins to flow quite effortlessly and easily. You know, you, you don't expend as much energy and you live very spontaneously and, and gracefully. And yeah, and life becomes much easier. There might be some of our listeners now listening in. They're saying, I don't have this purpose. I don't have this flow in my life. Is there a way to uncover that or discover that, Steve? Yeah, well, um, I think meditation helps a lot. Um, uh, not, not necessarily meditation itself, but any activity which has a meditative aspect to it. A lot of people find meditation itself in its pure form quite difficult because um, you know they sit down, they close their eyes, they concentrate on a mantra, or they try to concentrate on their breathing. But they find it difficult because a lot of thoughts shift through shift through their minds and take away their attention, and they find you know they're confronted with their own their own minds and the negativity can flow into their consciousness. So I sometimes recommend meditative activities rather than meditation itself. So meditative activities could be swimming, running, walking in the countryside, yoga, and other lots of other relaxing meditative activities. And those activities are really helpful in many ways. You know, they're, they're physically beneficial and they have lots of health benefits, of course. But maybe their, their biggest benefit is... Um, is mentally or spiritually because when you empty your mind when you slow down and empty your mind of thought chatter and when you begin to you know a lot, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of the time we have these buzzing thoughts about responsibilities and worries and anxieties we allow those to fade away then we create a space in our consciousness and when that space forms in our consciousness that's when something deeper begins to arise in us and begins to take us over or begins to inform our lives. And, you know, that's, that enables an innate purpose within us to express itself. And so I think that's, that's one way we can, we can help to find this purpose is just by quietening our minds and open, open, opening up some space within our consciousness just to allow those deeper levels of our being to express themselves you talk about a spiritual awakening as well and that can act as a catalyst for people to discover this purpose in their lives as well but but what do you mean by spiritual awakening spiritual awakening is a a shift into a new way of experiencing reality and sometimes it happens gradually you know some people spiritually awaken through years or even decades of gradual meditation or of uh, following the the eightfold path of Buddhism or the eight limb path of yoga, so there are lots of spiritual paths and spiritual practices which can lead to awakening. But in most cases, spiritual awakening happens quite suddenly, uh, quite dramatically, and usually, according in my research, it usually happens when people have gone through a period of deep trauma and intense turmoil. They often reach a point where they feel as though they've been broken down um, and when they, they feel so stressed and so full of turmoil that they can't continue. And it's almost as if um, their old identity or their old ego fades away or dissolves away. And there's suddenly a space inside them which allows a new self to arise. Uh, a bit like a, a butterfly emerging from a chrysalis. 
Um, so a new self arises with them, within them, and they almost feel as if they are, you know, a new person inhabiting the same body. It's a kind of rebirth, and uh, the birth of a new identity. And this is what spiritual awakening is. You know, when this new identity um, establishes itself, people feel that they're they're perceiving the world in a much more real and intense way. The world around them seems more vivid and more alive and more beautiful. And they feel they don't have the same sense of separateness as before. So a lot of people have an experience a sense of separateness between themselves and the world. But in spiritual awakening, people feel connected. They feel even a sense of oneness uh, with the world around them, with other people, with nature, with other li living beings. And there are many other characteristics too. One of them is um, people who are spiritually awakened feel an intense sense of compassion an intense sense of empathy. They have a sense that life is somehow meaningful and that there is a kind of harmony in the world that makes sense of things. They they lose their fear of death because they have a sense that um, death does not mean the, the extinction of consciousness. They have a sense that there may be some um, form of afterlife. So they're, so they're just some of, the, some of the characteristics of spiritual awakening. But in general, you could define it as a and in, an intensification and an expansion of awareness. And have you had spiritual awakening in your own life, Steve? I would say that for me, um, it was always inside me from, I probably became aware of it when I was like 16 or 17 years old. And I definitely had an, an innate spiritual sensibility. And... But it took me quite a long time to understand it and to accept it and to integrate it into my whole personality. So I say that it took me probably, you know, probably until about the age of 29. I think the age of 29 was probably a significant year for me. But that was when I felt that I'd really accepted and integrated the, the spiritual side of my being. And it became very stable and uh, very easy. And that was when... You know, in terms of purpose, that's when I began to follow a transpersonal purpose and this purpose was was able to flow through me and to sort of guide me through my life. Some people can go through that state of turmoil that you were speaking about there, Steve, mm -hmm. and they can have a lot of resistance towards it as well. Is there a reason why they may experience that resistance? Well, partly it's a, it's a question of not understanding what's happening to them uh, because a lot of people have this experience without any knowledge of spirituality or any knowledge of spiritual traditions. And so they may think that they're having some kind of psychological breakdown and they may feel confused. They may try to explain it to people around them who don't understand it either. So they become more confused. And it, it sometimes takes them several months or, or much longer, could be two, three years to kind of construct a framework which allows them to understand what they've been through. So it's a process of, um, you know, investigating, slowly being, slowly gravitating towards spiritual practices or spiritual ideas, maybe speaking to other people who've had similar experiences. And once, you know, once they have that framework, it's fine, but there's, there's definitely an, an initial phase of confusion and which, which, you know, uh, which which kind of, um, in some cases, that confusion encourages people to deny what's happened to them or to try to repress it. 
Is there a reason why, say, some people actually experience this spiritual awakening and other people don't? That's a good question, yeah, because obviously we all go through intense turmoil at some point in our lives. You know, we all suffer from bereavement. Uh, many of us are diagnosed with serious medical, medical conditions. So, you know, practically all human beings go through intense turmoil, but only a small minority experience spiritual awakening after this turmoil. So I think that there are there are probably two or three important factors. Um, one of them is acceptance. And I've, so I found that the people who underwent this transformation, it was often at the point where they accepted or kind of surrendered to their situation. So it was when they stopped resisting, where they stopped fighting what had happened to them. And they, they suddenly made a mental effort to let go and accept their situation. And that was often the point of transformation. That was often where the, when the transformation occurred. So most people probably find it quite difficult to accept these predicaments. You know, if you're diagnosed with cancer, your impulse is to resist, to fight it. And you may even not want to face up to the reality of what's happened to you. You may want to divert yourself or distract yourself. So you have to be able to face up to it and you have to be able to surrender or let go to it as well. So that's, that's one important factor. Um, and maybe, but in some cases, maybe some people are just not ready for it. You know, maybe their inner nature hasn't developed or evolved sufficiently for um, for a spiritual awakening to take place. You know, in some people, it was almost as if there was a latent higher self which was ready to emerge, and when their normal ego had, had dissolved away, that that created a space, and in that space, the new self the latent higher self emerged to fill the space. But for others, maybe the, that self was not ready to, to, to take place of the other self. Maybe it just wasn't ready to emerge. You know, just as, um, you know, um, there's a certain point where a, where a chick is ready to, to break, to hatch from an egg, but it's got to be the point when it's ready. So maybe, you know, in other, in other cases, they just weren't ready to emerge. Is there a difference, say, between spiritual awakening and, and enlightenment, Steve? No, I think it's basically the same thing. But I'm, um, to be honest, I'm not particularly fond of the term enlightenment because I think it's a bit misleading. Um, partly because it's not a very good translation of the original Buddhist term. Um, the original Buddhist term, which people use the, the term enlightenment for, uh, actually is literally translated as, as awakening and you know the buddha means the awakened one and the state of um being awake is was was the real meaning of that term but somebody somebody somewhere along the line used the term enlightenment um so it's a kind of mistranslation of the literal term so awakening is actually a more literal translation and another reason why i'm not so fond of the term is because Enlightenment suggests, and it's kind of popular, and it's popular usage. It suggests that spiritual awakening is an experience of complete bliss and complete ease, in which everything appears easy and beautiful. But in reality, spiritual awakening isn't like that. It, it, it can be quite difficult in some cases, and it's not always a completely blissful and easy experience. What are your thoughts, say, on you know, the purposes of depression and other so-called mental illnesses? 
Well, funny enough, I've just written an article about depression for my, uh, I have a blog on psychology today in America. It's an American magazine called psychology today. And just yesterday I posted a blog about depression and, uh, I did this because, uh, a friend of mine, uh, rang me up to ask for some advice about his father who was suffering from depression. And, uh, I suggested that his father should spend time in nature because, there's, there's a, a kind of emerging form of psychology called ecotherapy, eco-psychology and ecotherapy. And the basic principle of ecotherapy is that spending time in nature is therapeutic and it can alleviate depression, uh, it can create well-being. And research shows that it can even benefit people suffering from schizophrenia and other forms of um, psychological illness. So research shows that the concept of nature is very beneficial for people suffering from depression. So I told this to my friend and he said he was going to suggest it to his dad, you know, to go for a walk in the park every day or walk in the countryside. But he also told his father's doctor about this, the medical doctor. And the doctor was very angry about my suggestion. Uh, he said, you know, Depression is, a, the doctor said, depression is a medical condition. It's due to imbalances in the brain, chemical imbalances in the brain. So how can going for a walk in the countryside have any effect, any effect in it? You know, the doctor said, would you advise a can cancer patient to go for a walk in the countryside every day? Would that help to heal them? So this doctor had a very narrow-minded idea that depression is just due to chemical imbalance in the brain. And uh, the only way you can fix it is by giving people drugs, you know, like Prozac or or other forms of antidepressants. But I think that's absolute nonsense. I think that's dangerous. It's nonsensical. It's naive and simplistic and, and dangerous because, you know, there are so many different causes of depression. Often it's, um, it could be environmental. You know, you, you could be depressed because you're living in a terrible environment. You're living with an abusive partner. Um, you could be depressed because you're frustrated that you feel an intense creative impulse, which is being frustrated because you're, you're, you know, you're working in a, in a dead end job. You're working long hours and have no time to fulfill your creativity. You could be depressed because, you know, as eco psychology says, you're lacking contact with nature because it's this human instinct to, to require contact with nature. Uh, so you could be depressed for a whole variety of reasons, which have nothing to do with, with brain chemicals. And if you give somebody drugs to, change their brain chemistry, you know, you're not addressing the problem itself and you're actually making it less likely that the problem will be addressed. So it could actually be, be dangerous. Um, so I think de depression can arise from a variety of sources. You know, it could even be, a, you could, a, you could interpret depression in spiritual terms, uh, which is that, you know, people are not living authentically, that are not in contact with their true selves. Uh, then they're not allowing their impulse of spiritual development to express itself. So, yeah, so, I mean, I, I would encourage a kind of holistic and or an integral approach to depression. Do you think that we need to change our viewpoint on depression? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I, I think um, it's, it's very misleading. You know, even the research is not very uh, positive about the medical model. You know, there's research showing that um, antidepressants do not have any positive effects for 60 to 70 percent of people who take them. A lot of research in in psychology is funded by drug companies who try to, you know, they, they produce bias reports which are not valid, just to try and you know, try to flood the market with their with their products. 
Um, and, I, and I don't think um, drugs, you know, have any, you know, they, they may be beneficial in the short term if people are suffering from severe psychosis and they need to be stabilized for the short term. But in the long run, um, I don't think we should rely on them at all. I mean, if anything, I suggest that um, that if there are any any uh, associations between brain chemistry and depression or between brain chemistry and ADHD or other psychological conditions, it could there could be a kind of reverse causality that if a person is depressed because of circumstances in their lives or because their, their instincts or impulses are being frustrated, that depression will itself produces, produce changes in the brain uh, as a kind of, you know, it's a kind of sign, a kind of a correlation of the mood that they're in. But that, that obviously doesn't mean that the, the brain states create depression. The depression creates the brain states. Well, the same with ADHD. Maybe if somebody's, uh, if a child is very impulsive and can't concentrate, those states themselves will produce certain brain states. You know, they will change the chemistry of the brain. So it doesn't work to, to give somebody drugs to change their brain chemistry. The only thing which really works is to, for people to change their lives, to change their situations, you know, to address the real problems. You know, that's another problem with medication. It makes people a bit passive. You know, you, you sort of rely on an external thing to to change your mood. But in reality, you know, what really enhances your life is to change your life, to exert some form of control and to, to begin to, you know, create better circumstances for yourself. At times, many of us can struggle to be present in our lives, Steve. Why do you think that is? Well, um, I think it's partly because, or largely because, a lot of people have a kind of discord inside them. You know, when we when we don't have anything to to direct our attention onto, you know, when we're not busy, when we're not reading or speaking or watching TV or playing around on the on the internet, we 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 confront a kind of discord inside ourselves. You know, our thoughts begin to chatter away. We begin to we begin to feel boredom. We might feel lonely and we feel a kind of restlessness. So a lot of people experience this restlessness when they have nothing to do. And therefore, they find it difficult to be present because when they are present, they just experience this inner discord. So a lot of people try to escape that inner discord by distracting themselves, um, by making sure that they're not alone, by making sure that they always have something to do. And... You know, they rush as well. You know, people spend a lot of time rushing. They look forward to the future instead of being in the moment. Uh, they use all kinds of strategies of escaping from the present. But really because they're, they're trying to escape the, the restlessness and discord inside them. So I think to some degree, you know, if you want to be, if you want to spend more time in the present, and every human being should want to spend more time in the present because the present is the only reality you know, in actuality, there is nothing else apart from the present moment. Um, but if you want to spend more time in the present, you have to create a degree of inner quietness and uh, inner calmness. And when you do that, you, you begin to find it easy to, to do nothing. You don't feel that restlessness and that discord when you have nothing to do. You begin to find it easy to be alone and you begin to find it easy to, to be in the present moment. Is it harder now than say it was, you know, thirty or forty years ago to be present? In some ways, yeah, because there are so many ways of distracting yourself now. You know, if you don't want to be present, you can just pick up your smartphone and 
within a few seconds you're somewhere else you know if you don't want to be present you can just turn on your laptop and within one minute you're in the middle of a film or a, you know a video on youtube wherever you want to be it's so, it's so easy to for people to distract themselves now you know if you i remember you, you can i'm not sure how old you are but you can probably remember this yourself that when i used to go on the train 20 years ago people would be staring out of the window maybe look reading a newspaper maybe talking to each other but now if you go on a train everybody's staring at their smartphone or everyone's got their headphones on so it means that people probably spend less time in the present than they used to um you know so modern technology just offers so many ways of, of not being present should we get rid of the phones or reduce our use of them or, or what i think so i mean i i used to have a smartphone but i decided to to get rid of it because you know i didn't like having the temptation of checking my email every few minutes or you know wherever i was in the world i could always check my email so i mean i wanted to remove the temptation so i I downgraded to the cheapest possible mobile phone. Um, so yeah, and partly we should reduce our own access to them. But it's, it's one of those things that when you do give your attention to the present moment, and if you're on a train journey and you decide, right, you know, I'm going to put down my phone, I'm going to turn off my computer, I'm just going to be in the situation. I'm just going to look out the window. I'm just going to observe the people around me. When you do that, you realize how, how fulfilling it can be. And how rich an experience it is just to observe and pay attention. Um, so once you do that, you know you, you, you begin to spend more time in the present. Um, so we always have a choice. You know, wherever we are, we can choose to be immersed in distractions, or we can choose to be present. You know, if you if you're waiting at a train station, you can choose to read a newspaper. You can choose through choose to browse through the bookstore. Or you can just choose to observe. You can just choose to take in your surroundings, to observe the people around you. And if you do that, you always find that it's a very rich and rewarding experience. Would you have any tips, say, or even suggestions on how our listeners could live, say, a more happier, peaceful life? Well, in terms of well-being, I, I sometimes talk about the three A's. And so these are three essential aspects of well-being. And... One is awareness. So that's just what we were talking about then. Um, so it means spending more time in presence, spending more time just observing your surroundings and paying attention to your experience. A good example is, you know, if you're eating, it's tempting to, to get lost in thoughts, to think about what's happening later that day, or it's tempting to read newspapers or magazines or check your email while you're eating. But, you know, you can you can also eat in awareness. You can give your attention to the food, to the taste of the food, to the sensation of eating. And that's always a, you know, that always makes for a, a more pleasurable experience. So awareness is one thing. Another one is altruism. Um, so a lot of research in psychology has shown that living altruistically, you know, being kind to other people, being generous, giving rather than receiving. A lot of research shows that that, that is a, an essential aspect of well-being. You know, it's, it creates connection between people. It makes people less self-centered. It makes them less concerned with their own problems or their own um, needs and desires. Um, so it's important to, you know, to practice as much kindness as possible. That's another important thing. 
And the third A is appreciation. And, and that means experiencing gratitude for all the, you know, for all the positive things in our lives. And we, we often have many things in our lives which we take for granted. And partly because we're so used to them, partly because we've never experienced the absence of these things. But we tend to take things like our health, the people around us, our freedom, our material prosperity, um, and lots of other things like this. We, we don't appreciate how lucky we are to have these things. And sometimes it takes a brush with death or uh, illness or bereavement. Sometimes it takes these things to, to awaken this appreciation in us. But if we can cultivate an attitude of appreciation where we, we just remind ourselves of how lucky we are to have these things in our lives, to, to you know, the phrase count our blessings is, is very um, appropriate here. So if we just cultivate an attitude of, an attitude of gratitude uh, for the basic things in our lives, even just to be alive itself, you know, being alive is a, is a, a miraculous gift. You know, um, we're only alive for a certain amount of time and um, life is temporary, it's fragile, it's going to be taken away from us at some point. Uh, so it's a, it's a great gift. So we should appreciate the gift of life and we should appreciate the gifts of all the things which are in our lives, like our health, the people we love, the beauty, the beautiful activities we fill our lives with, the simple pleasures of eating, walking, seeing the beautiful countryside. You know, we should appreciate all these things. So, yes, I'd, I'd say those three things, awareness, uh, altruism and appreciation. They're three important aspects of a, a life of well-being. I know you're in Ireland soon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the, uh, the, the conference is the Intimate Arts Conference in Cork. It's on the 7th of no Saturday, the 7th of November. So I'm, I'm speaking at this conference. And what's the conference about, Steve? Um, the conference is about, it's about spirituality and well-being. Uh, so the speakers are, are talking about different approaches to, to spiritual development and, and to well-being. And uh, I think there's a, there are some um, qigong or tai chi exercises too. Um, there's some spiritual teachers and other, other uh, authors and teachers speaking. And if someone wanted to find out more about your work, Steve, and even about your books, like, how could they do it? Uh, yeah, the best best place is to go to my website, which is uh, www.stephenmtaylor.com. So that's Stephen with a V, M for Mark, stephenmtaylor.com. Thanks so much for your time, and I really enjoyed our, our interview. Okay, yeah, thanks a lot, Michael. Yep, I enjoyed it too. Mm -hmm.